The following podcast will contain foul language and spoilers, and if we're lucky, sex, violence, nudity, and triggers. Listener discretion is advised. Intro. Intro. Welcome to the Everett Book Club. We are a twice-monthly book review and discussion podcast specializing in old or out-of-print science fiction and fantasy. My name is Marguerite, and I'm a handmaid to the Duchess of the Democratic People's Republic of the Arctic. And my name is Ruiz Tremello, and I am a human submarine. Each episode, Marguerite and I discuss a story that we both read. Um... Unless Marguerite decided to read something else. And I did. You can find it on our Instagram. And this week, we're in one of my favorite ever places, Botswana, Peru. Where a penguin monastery dominates the skyline. Shooting penguin lasers at passing sharks of both land and sea. And this week, we are discussing Drunkard's Walk by Frederick Pohl from the year 1960. Marguerite, would you be a dear and describe the cover for our listeners? Sure. So, there's only one thing on the cover, and that is the... what I would consider a somewhat poor drawing of a skull. It's uh, psychedelic, got lots of colors, it's actually sort of... well, parts of it look like one of those heat sensors is looking at it, and then the other part, I don't know, there's some kind of poorly drawn symbol on the back side back side of the head yeah it's like the side of his head has a symbol yeah hmm yeah that's a weird one not our best cover ever (laughs) no so drunkard's walk by frederick pohl uh quick trigger warning for our listeners i know that we did have a quick warning off the top as we always do the following podcast will contain a bunch of discussions about and mention of suicide, so if that is your trigger, please avoid this episode, as well as the next one, because it's a two-parter. Yeah, spoilers. And because it's a two-parter, we'll be coming back with part two, one week from now, a week earlier than our usual bi-weekly schedule. That's very exciting. So, Drunkard's Walk, I'm going to go with a little bit of intro to describe when and where it takes place, but I'm going to do a little bit more than usual. Oh. So, our story takes place in the year 2196. Earth has 12 billion people, and most people barely have enough food to get by. There are vast cities, megacities everywhere, and a bunch of cities built into the oceans. Vast cities built along the coastlines out in the ocean. People refer to them as being uh, like someone lives on the Texas, off the coastline. They call it the Texas? Yeah, it's because I guess it's old oil platforms that have been uh, oh. repurposed into oh. being habitats. So they're on top of the ocean, not under the ocean? Yeah, so they're, they're on top of the ocean with giant okay. legs that go way, yep. way down into the ocean's floor. But there's tons of them. But it's just like, hey, so-and-so lives on the Texas off the coast. And oh, interesting. there are giant campuses scattered around. Uh, for universities where only a select few get to go to learn. So most people are starving, but they still have universities. Yeah, so, well, it's described that there's a lot of problems with getting resources around, and there's not quite enough resources for everyone, but the elite of the elite go to universities. Oh, okay. And it is one of those universities where our story mostly takes place. Oh, okay. So part one of Drunkard's Walk, we're going to start as usual with the first sentence. This man's name is Cornut, born in the year 2166, and now 30. He is a teacher. Mathematics is his discipline, 
Number theory is his specialty. His name is Corn Nut. Corn Nut. Corn Nut. Corn Nut. <laughs> or Corn Nut, if you choose, yes. That just seems like it's poking uh, at all the people who are starving. Like, ha, my name's a food. Oh, nice. <laughs> so we quickly learn that Corn Nut is handsome, but thinner than he should be. And also he could use some sun. Thinner than he should be in comparison to the wealthy or... Yeah, I think in comparison to a the healthy. Okay. So right off the no, top... No, the wealthy or the regulars. The, the regulars. Humans. Well, he's... um. Well, you'll find out. Because isn't the rest of the people kind of, you know, starving? There's not enough for everyone is the implication. So we learn a few things about him right off the top. He lives on the 18th floor of the Mathematics Tower of the university where he works. He has a small bedroom, which is sparsely decorated, except he has five alarm clocks. Oh, Jesus. And one of them wakes him up early because it makes a loud ticking sound every second ever since he dropped it. <laughs> Don't get rid of that one. <laughs> In a sleepy daze, Cornut thinks back to his many suicide attempts. Oh, my God. It turns out he's tried to kill himself nine times in the last 50 days. Whoa. But failed every time because he doesn't actually want to kill himself. Hmm. Drifting back to sleep, Cornet suddenly wakes up to find himself teetering on the edge of his open window, held back from his tenth suicide attempt by an undergrad who's shouting at him to wake up. So he's sleepwalking. Is that the obligation here? It is. Okay. At least for this attempt... His five alarm clocks suddenly start ringing, and Cornut snaps out of his daze and climbs back into the room, thanking the undergrad, whose name is Eggard. Eggard, Jesus, nice names. Suddenly, the housemaster of the math tower, named Master Carl, shows up and asks what's going on. Undergrad Eggard apologizes for all the noise, saying he always wakes up Cornut in the morning but showed up a little bit late. And because he was late, Cornut almost died. Oh, wow, that's a lot of pressure. Master Carl berates Eggard for leaving his room without shaving first. What? Well, <laughs> there's a certain comportment in a university. Oh, of course. Of course. And then tells Corna to report to his office immediately after breakfast. <laughs> so Corna goes back to his room to shave and uh, obsess over his many suicide attempts. Yeah, seems fair. Well, there he eyes the paper he's been working on, an analysis of the Wolgreen anomalies, which you'll hear more about later. Ooh, do tell. Yeah, oh, later. later. <laughs> <laughs> then he looks at his invite for the university's field expedition, leaving later that night. Cornut doesn't want to go on the expedition because he's too busy, though he thinks that if they were leaving in three months, they could possibly go. You know, if he's alive in three months, that <laughs> is. Wow. Heading to breakfast at the math cafeteria... Cornet greets the people... The math cafeteria just for the maths? Well, they're in the math tower. So there's the math cafeteria and the math toilets and oh, math the math tower. closets. And... I don't know whether the math tower kind of sounds awesome or just terrible. <laughs> I would not want to live there. <laughs> so he um, greets people warmly as he walks into the math cafeteria. And a few make some friendly... Mathateria? Oh... <laughs> And a few people uh, make some friendly references to his multiple suicide attempts. Oh, friendly references. Hey, Cornut, how you doing? How is your latest suicide? I'm a bit cavalier about that, I would say. They are. He sits down at Master Carl's table, where Carl has a bunch of photos spread out. All of them show fuzzy, out-of-focus blobs. 
Master Carl asks Cornut if one of the pictures looks like a star. And he says no. <laughs> and then Cornut confesses to Master Carl the entire story of all of his suicide attempts, because apparently Master Carl's the only one in the math tower who doesn't know. Wow. While talking, Cornut pulls out a cigarette, and one of the student waitresses notices and runs over to light it for him. Oh, jeez. <laughs> now that's service. Also, man, nice era. So this is the future. Yes. And they're still smoking. Of course they are. It was written in 1960, and uh, things course. that happen in 1960 always keep happening forever. It's the bright, beautiful future if you can smoke in the cafeteria. So the waitress that uh, lights his cigarette is a pretty girl named Losil. And Cornette seems slightly infatuated with her for a few seconds before Master Carl calls to get his attention back to the conversation. <laughs> and Cornette goes on to say to Master Carl that he only tries to kill himself while he's sleepy. And then in his dreams, it feels like someone in a position of authority is telling him to kill himself. <laughs> Authoritative voice. Mm-hmm. So now we know. And Master Carl replies that there are only two possibilities to such a puzzle. Either someone is physically standing above his bed at night telling him to kill himself, which can be ruled out, or someone is sending him telepathic messages. Wait, except, why is this ruled out? Except that te telepathy doesn't exist, so that's not possible either. So it's the person standing above him... All night long. All night long. Person of authority. I... Are you saying that Master Carl dismissed that with too fast, as though to get the suspicion off of him? Yeah. He's like, oh, that couldn't happen. <laughs> so the two of them chat about the Wolgren anomalies for 20 minutes before Cornut leaves. Why is Carl the only one who has a, let us say, a contemporary to us name? And oh, not I know, a right? fantasy name. That's a good question, because everyone except for Carl has a fantasy name. How is it spelled? C-A-R-L? Oh. <laughs> so there are 12 other tables in the math cafeteria, and as Cornut is leaving, people at eight of the different tables invite him to sit down for, to chat. <laughs> but he leaves to go to an appointment with his analyst, a character who doesn't have a name. Oh, bummer. As he walks across the campus for his analyst meeting, Cornut thinks back to what his analyst told him last time that five other professors have killed themselves in the last few years, one of whom tried 15 times before he succeeded. That's not suspicious at all. Master Carl, standing above everyone's bed. <laughs> Creepily. Yeah. I don't mean to laugh at that, but... <laughs> <laughs> the analyst also told Cornut that he was lucky because he had made it seven weeks without seriously hurting himself, although the record for survival is ten weeks. Oh, wow. Shouldn't they start investigating into why this is happening? You would think so, yes. And so then we switch our point of view briefly, for one short chapter, hmm. to follow the student waitress, Losil. We learn she's there on a scholarship and grew up in a Texas. She thinks about Cornut for a bit before deciding to meet up with Eggard, the undergrad, who's asked her to a date on Saturday night. She doesn't want to commit to the date because she's not that into him. But he says to her that he'll, he'll just ask her again tomorrow. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, persistence always pays <sighs> off. <laughs> Eggard goes on to tell her about how he saved Cornut's life that morning, even though he was almost too late. And Lasil gets mad at him, saying he should never be late because Cornut is counting on him to save his life. <laughs> really? That's not a real brag. <laughs> In response, Eggard proposes marriage. What? 
which it turns out is in the future a provisional thing. Uh, because Lucille says she's really not all that like into the idea, and Eggert says, no, no, it's okay, because we can just go month to month, and if you're not happy after a month, just don't renew the contract. Oh. So, just date, then. But instead, they get married. What is the advantage, do you think, of getting married in the society of over-dating? That's a very good question that's never really explored. Yeah. All right. I'm always asking the questions that these books don't care about. Well, okay. So he's asking her on a date and she's like, no. So then he's like, do you want to get married? And apparently that's not too much of an escalation because they could just go month to month. But Yeah, I, but if she doesn't want to date him, you would think she, think she wouldn't want to marry him correct. either. Anyhow, uh, Lucille doesn't really answer his uh, provisional marriage contract idea. <laughs> And so Edgar gets mad and accuses her of having a crush on Cornut. Mm, he sounds like a dick. She stammers a denial, but Edgar walks off saying, Cornut doesn't even know that Lucille is alive. That's not true. And then we cut to the analyst's office. Mm -hmm. The character without a name, who we will only meet once or twice. The analyst asks Cornut if Cornut will please stay in the med center overnight to be watched over by doctors and nurses. Yeah, that's a good idea. You know, maybe Master Carl can't sleep. <laughs> he maybe... can't get in there? Yeah, can't walk in there. <laughs> it's Master Carl proof. Yeah. Cornut says no. Why? And the analyst says he already tried to have Cornut committed, but the president's office of the, the president of the university wouldn't approve the paperwork. <gasps> Suspicious. Cornette leaves and goes to the TV studio, where he puts on makeup and heads to stage for math class. What? <laughs> so there's a few hundred students in the audience, but his lecture is being viewed by three million viewers around the world. Oh, okay. It's a very well-produced and well-shot and directed and complicated TV thing, which even has its own math cartoons. Whoa, really? Accompanying his lecture, yeah. Oh, that sounds good. And then we have 14 pages about Pascal's triangle to the binomial theorem. No, it's actually two pages. It just felt like 14. <laughs> it, it was like he was trying to make it seem oh, like a real sorry, math Oh, sorry. You're saying you actually read. I read 14 you pages. You read 14 pages. I thought you were just saying he was reading off 14 pages. <laughs> sorry. I misunderstood. We shift our point of view to the studio control room where people are watching the math lecture. And then we start hopping around the world, first down the coast to the Sandy Hook, Texas, where a mentally challenged man named Roger watches the lecture, because he's hoping to glimpse his sister Lucille in the audience. Oh. Cornut lectures about math for a while more, then gets an itch on his throat. He absent-mindedly scratches it with his pointy stick. Whoa, wait, oh, outside of his throat. Okay. The itch on his throat. And while continuing his lecture suddenly starts slitting his own throat. What? Fully severing one of his jugular veins before Lucille runs out of the audience to grab his arm and save his life. Ooh, I don't think she did. Save his life? Yeah, <laughs> like he's gone through one of his veins. Cornut snaps out of his trance and is horrified by the blood. Yeah, I would be too. Cut to... Cornut walks across the campus later that afternoon, his neck heavily bandaged. The medics had apparently demanded they give Cornet a full psychomedical checkup. Obviously. But he said no and decided to go Why? home and take a nap. 
No, that's what gets you killed. <laughs> Because he has to get dressed that night for a major event. Faculty tea served as a goodbye to the field expedition. Ooh, fancy. 300 members of the faculty mingle in a huge vaulted room. And as Cornut walks through the crowd, he hears several people talking about him. Oh, so it's the only thing anyone ever talks about? It's the only thing going on on campus, apparently. <laughs> he finds Master Carl speaking to an ancient-looking old man. An ancient-looking old man. He's not just old, he's ancient-looking <laughs> and old. And it's the president of the university, St. Kerr. St. Kerr? That's right. Uh, S-T-S-B-C-Y-R. And then people actually call him a saint later, like S-A-I-N-T. Interesting. Okay. Saint Kerr is described as the ugliest man in the room. His, oh no! His face wrinkled and scarred, and his skin cyanotic blue. Oh wow! Also nearby are Master Greenleaf from the physical chemistry department and Master Wall from anthropology, both of whom are deep in discussion with Master Carl. Master Greenleaf's? Uh, Greenleaf's. Ah. When Cornut walks up, the university president, St. Kerr, greets him with a limp handshake. Aw, nothing's worse than a limp handshake. And a simple declaration of, nice weather. Ah, oh, small talk. Ah, oh, the worst. Master Wall, who's not invited on the field expedition, notices Cornut and asks, quote, Committed any good suicides lately, boy? Oh my god, these people are monsters! Then says he doesn't blame Cornut for trying to kill himself because he, because he has to go on the expedition to Tahiti. What? But Cornut says they're not going to Tahiti. It's a different island in the South Pacific. Ooh, what a terrible Snappy vacation. Comeback. <laughs> While Cornut waits patiently for Master Carl, Master Carl continues chatting with Master Greenlace about photographing molecules. Because remember, he was uh, taking pictures. They were all blurry blobs. Oh, yeah. That will factor into the plot later. Okay. And then Cornut can't stand waiting anymore and announces to anyone in hearing range that he can't go on the field expedition because he has to keep working on the Wolgren anomaly, which you'll <laughs> find more about later. All right, I better. As the reader, you actually have no idea what this is, and he just keeps bringing it up over and over. Oh, that'd be so frustrating. <laughs> But President St. Kerr breaks in to announce that Cornut has to go on the expedition, period ordering him on the advanced plane so that he'll get there when the president arrives on the late plane. Hmm. Some newspaper reporters suddenly show up and start asking questions to various people about the field expedition, which is how we finally learn what the expedition is all about. Finally. They're going to a remote Pacific island where a tribe of aborigines have been discovered after being uncontacted by civilization for several generations. How? There's like... 12 billion people on I the planet. I know, it's kind of a, it's a rare feat. And they're going to bring seven of the tribe's people back with them and go on a world tour. I guess showing the tribe's people off, you know, to the world. Hey, here's Europe. Look at it. You're a savage from an island. The world all backwards. sounds kind of dystopian. I don't... It is mildly dystopian, but it's also kind of weird. You'll find out more. Oh, okay. I can't wait. Cornut takes Master Carl aside and asks why he has to go on the field expedition when it has nothing to do with math. And Carl says it's a ceremonial thing and a great honor, so he has no choice. What? <laughs> so random. After a brief argument, Master Carl won't change his mind, so Cornut leaves to go pack. This Master Carl is sounding awfully suspicious. 
The first plane leaves in an hour. So when Cornut's done packing, he decides to go to the medical center for a full psychomedical checkup. Which will take longer than an hour, most likely. I would hope so. Yeah, he's uh, he's <laughs> hoping to miss the plane. <laughs> While there, Master Carl shows up to tell him to get on the plane. And Cornet says he'll just take the late plane once the medics tell him what's wrong with him and how to stop killing himself. <laughs> so, goes to the analyst and says, you have an hour to fix me. Wow. Or a little bit more. But... They haven't fixed him yet. I don't think one hour is going to do it. <laughs> Master Carl replies that Cornut should just get married. That'll solve all his problems. <laughs> we brew it now. <laughs> well, it'd be an extra person around keeping him from killing himself. Ooh, that's true. A medic arrives with some test results. Good news, Cornut is 100% perfectly healthy. They give him some random pills that we don't know what they are, saying, quote, Just in case, said the medic, they couldn't hurt, and they might help. <laughs> couldn't hurt, huh? And they might we'll help. See. <laughs> and Cornut is given the all-clear for the expedition. But as Cornut leaves, he spots a folder on a desk that the medic left behind. It's a study of all of the university suicides. So the medical center has already given him several things that he should be coming in, several tests, and he's rejected all of them yeah he he doesn't want help because he's too busy living oh, life so busy but he doesn't want to go on this trip so he should just be like yeah sure i'll take all these tests <laughs> yeah, right no now so he and master carl rush to the airfield and arrive just in time to watch the plane leave down the runway and get airborne oh they missed oh, the plane no. but master carl's delighted saying he'd rather ride on president st kerr's private jet anyway oh that was his plan all along <laughs> Suddenly, the plane that just took off explodes in a burst of flame. <gasps> Everybody dies. Oh, what? Wait, so didn't that have all of... No, not all the professors. No, it had a bunch of... Uh, actually, it says that it, there was four students on the plane, plus the crew. So it's just students? Apparently, that was a very small number of people on that plane. But it was supposed to be Cornut and Master Carl as well. Oh, okay. And then students. And some students plus okay. the crew. So, then we cut to... It's the president's private plane flying high above the Pacific Ocean. They go anyway, even after this horrible tragedy. <laughs> yep. St. Kerr is pissed off by the extra people on the plane. Oh my god, what a monster! Taking up room. But Cornut doesn't care because he's too happy about missing the first plane and, you know, oh, not dying. I would imagine he's extra happy. <laughs> They land on an unnamed remote tropical Pacific island. Unnamed. And the moment they get to the airport, Cornut runs straight to the bar. That'll solve his problems. <laughs> the rest of the expedition don't notice that he's missing, and they leave the airport via helicopter to go to another nearby aren't, island. Aren't they, like, constantly talking about him? You'd think they'd <laughs> notice he wasn't there. Cornut has some drinks and opens up the file on the study of the suicides. Which is fun, because uh, I don't know why he didn't read that on the plane. Yeah, it'd probably be a long term. Plus, now he's on this uh, tropical vacation with no one to bother him. You'd think he'd be like, I don't want <laughs> to think about this. He learns that the true number of suicided university professors on the campus is 15. Oh my god. With hundreds more on other campuses, and a few even in various governments. Interesting. Cornut gets very drunk. <laughs> Might as well. Meanwhile, Master Carl meets the natives, the uh, uncontacted tribe. Mm -hmm. 
And I did not add any quotes from the book because it was very racist. Oh, no. It's basically that it, the natives are a tribe of Japanese soldiers who hid in the jungle during World War II and then had no contact with the rest of the world for the next 250 years. So it's the couple generations later, and right. they're all kind of very dirty and wearing mock military uniforms and don't really have any understanding of the world. But mostly, they sort of speak in that 1960s racist Japanese lingo, oh, like no. from Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh, no. Yeah, so there's no quotes from that. Well, this isn't surprising considering how cavalier this book is about suicide. So. <laughs> and, and smoking in cafeterias. <laughs> oh, yep, two equivalencies. So Master Carl thinks that the natives smell bad, saying, quote, Dirty looking things, Master Carl commented. Thank heaven I don't have to go near them. In response to that, President St. Kerr tells Master Carl that he has to be the one to supervise the medics when they start giving checkups to the natives. That's really nice of him. <laughs> Seven of the natives get on board the helicopter with the expeditioners and then fly back to the airport. So they just went with no issues or yeah, anything? Just went to the island, grabbed some natives. No, no, the back. natives just yeah. voluntarily came along? Apparently. So how many generations would that be? 250 years? Uh, if we're talking 30 years per generation, then my calculator says eight. And eight. a little bit. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I was just thinking how far beyond mm -hmm. the original settlers it would be. Oh, yeah. So like eight generations. Okay. So they probably wouldn't have, they would have lost whatever knowledge they had about. Um, the outside world? The outside world. Oh, yeah. So it's past midnight when they get back to the airport, and Master Carl, uh, who realizes long past that Cornut is missing, by the way, decides to go looking for him. And he's a little bit worried that Cornut is going to be dead, but he finds him in a much better position than being dead. <laughs> Not dead. He is passed out in a gutter on the side of the road outside the airport, sound asleep. <sighs> Oh, he got drunk alone and, and passed, passed out in a gutter. In a gutter. So cute. Like a university student. <laughs> oh, yeah, and there's one other thing. Um, when they were visiting the natives, mm -hmm. um, there was a wrinkled old woman who looked about as ugly and super ancient as St. Kerr there, too. <gasps> Seriously? They yeah. should pick up. And she was wearing not enough clothes, and it went in quite... Uh, oh. vicious details. Really? Is that the word I'm looking for? Lis salacious details. Salacious. Lascivious? Ooh, that's the word I was looking for. Thank you. You're welcome. In any case, he brings Cornut back to wherever the expedition is, sent, is staying. It doesn't really stay where they are. Mm -hmm. And when Cornut wakes up, Master Carl tells Cornut all about his pet project. Those blurry pictures that we saw earlier. Okay, yeah, the blurry pictures. Basically, Master Carl is trying to... Sasquatch. <laughs> <laughs> no, Sasquatch exists. Sasquatch does not exist. We have a bet, you and I. I know we do. It's, what, $100? It's something. Sasquatch will be proven by the year 2020? It will not. Ugh, I feel like you're going to be right and I'm going to be wrong. <laughs> I agree. Anyhow, Master Carl is trying to prove that telepathy exists by using his mind to make shapes appear on the film. He's the one making everyone commit suicide. <laughs> Cornut says that he's really not all that interested. In telepathy? 
in uh, Telepathy or Master Carl's project to prove telepathy. Or Master Carl. And that's when Master Carl asks if Cornnut knows about the drunkard's walk. Mm. It's basically when one molecule hits another and hits another and hits another, and you end up tracing the paths of all of the molecules that hit each other, and it's an erratic and complicated and unpredictable line hmm. or series of lines. Is this true? Is this a real theory? Uh, or is this fictionalized for the book? That is a very good question. In physics, let's say. Why don't I look that up right now? Right meow. Yes, there is. It's called the drunkard's walk problem. So it is an actual theory. Cool. That's awesome. I love when sci-fi actually uses real theories from like physics and stuff. Oh, you know what's good for that? SG-1. Didn't see enough of it. Sorry. You didn't see enough of SG-1? I did not. <gasps> Do you want to watch it At together? some point, yes. Yes! <laughs> I would totally rewatch that. Yeah, so me good. Too. Me too. All right. All that Master Carl needs to do to prove that telepathy exists is to knock one single molecule with his mind to cause a reaction. And then see an erratic path? And then Master Carl thinks really, really hard at a jar of liquid. But then nothing happens. <laughs> so he says, oh, you know, maybe film is easier than liquid, which is why he's using film to try to take huh. pictures. Interesting. By the way, also, Cornet should get married. <laughs> I was out of nowhere. Hey, how about that student waitress from the cafeteria? What's her name again? Locille? Man, everyone is all up in uh, Cornet's business. Cornet says that he knows nothing about her, except that apparently Eggard is courting her. Oh, okay. Sorry, I thought Yeah, everyone's he... in everyone's business then. Yeah, all up in everyone's business. Cut to back on the university. Eggard is asking Lucille for her hand in marriage again. Oh, man. Dude, let it go. She says no, and Eggard says he'll just ask again on the first of next month. Oh, this is the worst. I, I guess if it's on the first of each month that you have to get married, it seems. <laughs> oh, it's like when you move into a new place. Oh, yeah. You gotta like move rent. on the first. Yeah, it's like that kind of contract. Mm -hmm. So, Lucille leaves and heads to the faculty mess hall to prepare because tonight's the big dinner to celebrate the return of the field expedition. This is, of course, some amount of days later. Mm -hmm. She gets to work, and after several hours, Eggert shows up with three of the aboriginals. Oh, what happened to the other four? And takes her aside to ask if she wants to meet them. She's not that interested. What? And that's the moment when Eggard says that he's been chosen by Master Carl to accompany a different group of aboriginals on a tour of South America. Leaving soon. And he'll be gone for 16 weeks. What? Master Carl has arranged for Eggard to be in South America and out of Cornut and Lucille's way. Oh, okay. Sorry, I didn't really catch that. So Cornut's right there, and Lucille clearly can't stop looking at him. She has a thing for him. Oh, yeah. And uh, Eggard is kind of frustrated, so he just leaves. Hmm. Smart and choice. So Cornut walks up and asks Lucille if he could talk to her tomorrow at noon at Overlook Tower. Oh, no. She agrees, and Cornut heads back into the party, where he gets super drunk, and he watches everyone passing around the natives' pipes. Smoking unspecified substances and having a great time. Nothing's changed in the future. That's right. Cornut gets too drunk, of course, because this keeps happening lately. 
Maybe that's his problem. Maybe you should stop drinking so much. Maybe that has something to do with the title. <laughs> and he has to leave, so he stumbles home and goes to bed, where he has nightmares about voices commanding him to kill himself. See, dude, stop drinking. <laughs> the next morning, Eggard tries to wake up Cornut to prevent his possible suicide. But Cornut was too drunk and sleeps right through all the noise of Eggard trying to wake him and all five alarm clocks. Hmm. Been so, there. So Eggard gives up and leaves. Oh, no! <laughs> Which is possibly dangerous, but Cornut gets up an hour later with a remarkable hangover. Oh, I'm sure. He heads to the medical center for some pills, where a machine samples his DNA and automatically dispenses his prescription. Quote, wake-up pills. Oh, they have hangover pills? They do. <gasps> oh, the future's glorious. He pops one into his mouth and instantly feels better. Oh, that is fantastic. Or that's placebo effect if it's instant. Eh, could be true. And he Either goes way. right for Overlook Tower. Lucille shows up right at noon, getting to the top by riding these spiral escalators that wind Ooh. around the outside of the 200-foot-tall tower. That sounds dangerous. Cornut is waiting at the top. And her heart races to see him. Aww. Quote, Ah, he said. <laughs> Locille. He nodded as though she answered. Eloquent. She had not. Locille, he said. I need a wife. You will do. Oh, man. And she replies, Thank you, Master Cornut. Ew. <laughs> Unless she's into that, and he's into that, then that's cool. Cornut then confirms that Lucille's not actually married to Eggard, and she says no, she's not. <laughs> and then he pops a pill and asks if she's ever been pregnant before. Well, it's kind of personal. She says no, and then watches Cornut take another wake-up pill. Whoa, dude, calm down on the wake-up pills. Before he asks if tonight, after his late class, will work for the wedding. Oh, so romantic. She agrees, and then Corna takes another wake-up pill. Okay, wait a minute. Let's pause here for a second. Yes. So, they're having an actual wedding for this marriage that yes, is only provisional month to month. month so, theoretically, month. you could have, like, several weddings in oh, yeah. a year, uh, and, like, tons and tons of weddings over a lifetime. That get expensive i would imagine i get the impression that it's not much of a real wedding if they are oh, planning it so the same not... day as the <laughs> proposal do you think she wears like a fancy ass well she'd have to wear a fancy ass dress uh, i suppose you will or won't find out Ooh, i'm excited so he takes another pill and then says quote lucille perhaps you've heard stories about me I, uh, we've all heard stories about you. The entire campus knows. I have had a number of accidents lately. And one reason why I wish to take a wife is to guard against any more accidents. Do you understand? <sighs> At least he's being honest. He then takes another wake-up pill before suddenly Dude, realizing you... how many pills he's taken. I was just going to say, man, that's enough. Cornet rushes to the edge of the tower, leans over, and forces himself to vomit. Too bad there's spiral escalators on the outside of the tower. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> oh, that would be so disgusting. <laughs> also, I think she might be regretting the saying okay to the marriage thing. Well, they'll still wait oh, patiently. So nut pukes for several minutes. Oh... And then thanks, Locille, saying that she was the reason that he snapped out of his trance and noticed that he was taking all the pills. 
Was she, though? LaSalle says that she literally didn't do anything. <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> and denies helping him, saying that it was all him. <laughs> that evening, Master Carl officiates the ceremony, which we hear really nothing about. There's no comments about her dress. You you led me to believe that there would be a description of her dress. <laughs> I may or may not have built... Her dress was the loveliest uh-huh. shade of green. Uh-huh. It had... What shade of green? Forest green. Beautiful and... Accents of blood red. Ah, oh, that sounds lovely. Yeah. <laughs> it takes place on Christmas. This is a Christmas story. That's why uh-huh. I've been talking about Christmas this whole time. No, anyway, never mind. So, we have a very brief ceremony that I don't remember any details of and wrote down nothing about. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, that was a sarcastic thank you, wasn't it? (laughs) And then Lucille and Cornut head back to Cornut's room. Are you ready for this? I don't know if I'm ready, but continue. They stare at each other awkwardly for a few minutes and have trouble making conversation. And then Cornut leaves to go for a walk. Oh my god. <laughs> now that's a wedding night. Woo, successful. He wanders for several hours across the campus, pondering life and thinking about how he keeps wanting to kill himself. And when he gets home, a noise issues from the door the moment he's opened it. It turns out Lucille has rigged up an alarm in case he ever goes sleepwalking. So the door opens and the alarm goes off and she'd wake up. Oh, she's smart. I like her. She's proactive. And she's moved her own bed into the room, right next to his bed. They are married. And they have separate beds because it's the future. (laughs) Suddenly, Cornut realizes that Lucille is very beautiful. Suddenly. (laughs) Out of nowhere. Bam. Just consummate this already. (laughs) And we come to the end of part one of Drunkard's Walk with one of my favorite quotes from this entire story. Ooh. To end part one, quote, Cornut had picked her out as a shopper, might select one roast over another. Oh, oh no. Cornut had told her what to do. Cornut had, as far as he possibly could, arranged to destroy with method and plan everything of eagerness and spontaneous joy that there might have been. It was his particular fortune that he had failed. He looked at her and knew what had never entered into his calculations. It had never occurred to him that she might be eager for him. Okay. Ah, So we start off with a suicide attempt, his tenth one, and we end on a happy, blissful wedding night. Blissful. Well, she's into him, and he thinks that she's hot, so that's the recipe for success, right? Sure. (laughs) Sure. And that has been Drunkard's Walk. Do you have any predictions about where the story's going? Oh, no, it's sort of meandering. Uh, let's see. So, to recap, he has probably, I'm going to say probably at some kind of uh, influence on him trying to get him to commit suicide because it's, you know, there's a lot of evidence towards that. That's right. There's suicides in government and other facilities. Yeah. So, okay. So, it starts off that. And then we've got this other. Oh, man, we've got a subplot there where Which these we... university professors have decided to kidnap a bunch of Native people <laughs> and... Take them on a tour of the world. Take them on a tour. 
on a little show. Look, look, they're natives. Look, everyone, look at the natives. Yeah, like... It's very progressive that uh, way. You would call this back in the 30s and 40s, I guess, a freak show, so that's yeah. super progressive. Uh, and then we've also got Professor Carl. Yeah. Who... He's trying to prove telepathy by taking blurry photos. prove telepathy. So, okay, we've got all this stuff going on. And we've got the Wolgren anomalies that he's been, Cornut's been working on for Jesus. so long. I just want to hurry up and know what those are. You will find out pretty quick into the next part. And then we've got this weird marriage thing. And we've got... So, okay, so he's gotten married at this point. So, I'm assuming at some point he either... Fixes, finds a fix for the influence on his mind. All right. Or he doesn't. <laughs> so he either does or he doesn't. So the next chapter, Cornette's out and Master Carl becomes the main character. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Takes over the husbandly duties. No. So, okay. So obviously there's something to do with, yeah, I don't know, something to do with All right. There's the prediction and you'll find out in part two. This has been the Everett Book Club. You can visit us online at www.everettbookclub.com. Or email us at everettbookclub at hotmail.com. We have a Facebook. It's the Everett Book Club. We also have a Twitter. Everett Book Club. If you or your organization are building an artificial intelligence, Marguerite and I are available to administer Turing tests. Please note, there is no guarantee of accuracy, efficacy, or professionalism. And if you know of any secondhand bookstores that deserve some love, email us and we'll give them a shout out. So, Marguerite, we're here in the lovely town of Botswana, Peru, one of my favorite places on earth. Mm-hmm. And uh, I heard that tonight the Penguin Monastery is holding a feast and you've been invited. What about you? Well, as you know, I've been banned from entering the Penguin Monastery due to my controversial views on penguin architecture. I can't remember. Are you for or against? I can't say in case they're listening. You know they are always listening with their giant fluffy ears and prehensile tails. Well, there's no way I'm missing out on the barbecued anteaters and the penguin trapeze artists. Can you take some pictures for me? We'll see. To be continued. <laughs>